welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast, where we interview the world's leading CEOs, business executives, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and authors. Our mission is to learn the strategies and tactics that have helped our guests succeed in business and life, and share those lessons with you so that you can become a Bulletproof Entrepreneur. My name is Chiu Dogu, and I'm the co-founder and COO of Adobe Media Group. Dogu Media Group is a podcast marketing and new media agency that helps corporations create and amplify their story via high-quality branded audio content that builds a community of highly engaged fans who are their ideal clients for their premium products and services. And now, without further ado, on with the show. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. If you want to learn how to grow your sales using Gorilla B2B sales strategies, then you'll definitely want to check out this summit. 10 world-class entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and sales and marketing professionals are going to share their best-kept secrets on how to grow your sales in the B2B space. You'll learn things like how to leverage your skills, how to apply LinkedIn to get non-stop leads, how to prospect and win, how to be a go-giver so that you can get more clients by actually serving them first, and of course, the art of closing the deal with your prospects and clients so that they'll feel like they're doing business with their long-lost friend. I have speakers coming from the likes of Dan Locke, Bob Berg, Paul Brody, Kimanzi Constable, Josh Elledge, Dr. Cindy McGovern, Tyle Roxon, Monique Russell, and Karen Yankovic. They'll be sharing their best-kept secrets on how you can succeed and win in your B2B sales goals in 2020. The summit starts November the 18th and 19th and will feature 30-minute actionable keynote addresses to equip you with all the tools and strategies you need to succeed. If you want to sign up, go to www.b2bsamas.com or www.b2bsalesmasterysummit.com to sign up for the B2B Sales Mastery Summit. I can't wait to see you there. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Ron Tite. We're going to have a very awesome discussion today about Coos, his new book titled Think, Do, Say, and his life, his background, and his experiences. So before we get into the interview, let me just read a quick bio of Mr. Ron Tite. Ron is the founder and CEO of the marketing agency Church and State. He's the host and executive producer of the podcast Coup. He's an award-winning advertising writer and creative director, has worked with many notable brands from around the world, including brands like Microsoft. He's co-authored the book Everyone's an Artist, or at least they should be, by HarperCollins in 2016, and he wrote the stage play The Canadian's Baby Bonus. He's also written a children's book, and he was one of the hosts of the award-winning comedy show Monkey Toast. I'm pleased to have Ron on the show today to talk a little bit more about innovation, branding, corporate strategy, and of course, coups and entrepreneurship. So Mr. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I, I, this is how selfish I am as the former stand-up comedian. I just assumed this microphone was just for me. But this, <laughs> but this is for both of us, right? No, it's okay. So, it's just okay. We can, it's all right? So Ron, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, you know, because you're right now the head of a marketing agency. Mm-hmm. You were into comedy and stand-up. You were a TV producer and writer. And you also worked in an organization and as advertising uh, executive. So tell us a little bit more about how that whole career arc came to be and then how you started your own company right now. Luck. 
100% it was just lucky I have no idea I closed my eyes and I woke up today and I was like how did this all get here uh, I think that you know that uh, throughout my career it's just been really about pursuing the things that interested me and that I was really curious about and there was no goal there was no like long term plan of hey, if I go on you know, I've become a comedian, and then mm. 20 years later, I'll use those skills to become a speaker. Mm -hmm. That, no, you know, I think, you know, if I'm looking back, I think the most, the, the thing that had the, the greatest effect on my career was the decision to do stand-up comedy. Mm. Because it was, there's no sane logical reason for anybody to do that. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no money in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a few choice people, sure there are, but you really got to make it to, mm -hmm. to make money. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I, but I just wanted to do it to do it. I was very curious about it as an art form and wanted to know what the method to the madness was. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I'm just going to do it. And then you do it once and suddenly you're a comedian, mm. and people go, "Do you want to do you want to do a show now?" But now, to the entrepreneurs out there, I think there's something really interesting about how I launched my stand-up quote-unquote career. Yeah, because I I know like from all the specials I've seen and watched that most comedians say, "Oh, your first show is going to suck," and a lot of them almost give up after the first, second, and third because they get booed, they lack self-confidence, and and it's just it's just a pain to actually watch people look at you and say, "Oh man, you're not funny." You yeah. get off the screen. <laughs> so going into that and knowing all this, I'm sure you must have done it. You did it in Toronto, right? In yeah. Some of the stand-up clubs. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that entrepreneurial lesson of actually starting to get comfortable on the stage and then telling jokes and writing jokes. Well, there's a very specific thing that, that was entrepreneurial. And people don't think of comedy as being entrepreneurial, mm. but I took it a very entrepreneurial approach to it. So there are two ways that anybody can start stand-up to be a stand-up comedian. One way is that you go to an open mic night, mm -hmm. you're randomly selected, you get pulled up on stage, you get five minutes... And, and everybody there that night is doing it for the very first time. Mm. If you're good enough and they go, you should come back next week. And they come back and you do the same five minutes again. And if you're good enough then, they go, come back again. And maybe a year later, you get a Tuesday night, mm. you know, and you can do seven minutes as an opener and then you just continue to build your time. Mm. So I went to see it. And I thought, I'm going to do stand-up. I'm just going to, I'm not going to sign up. I just want to see what this is all about. Mm. I went. It was the most depressing night of my life. Mm. Because I thought, this isn't fun. There's nothing funny about this. People, some people are drunk. Someone's losing a bet. Like, and it's really cocky. But I said, I'm already better than any of these people. And I've never done it. Mm. Like, I, I just know this. I'm, not, I'm way better than this. So I went to, and, I'm, and I was more serious about it, right? Um, and so I went to a friend and I said, I'm not doing that. That's hor it was a horrible experience to watch. What else can I do? And he said, well, the only other thing you can do is you can get to know a producer who's producing a show somewhere and convince that person that even though you've never done it before, mm. convince them to let you on their show and do five minutes at mm. a, a club somewhere. And I thought, well, I have more than five minutes. And he said, well, no one's going to let you on to do ten <laughs> minutes. You've never done it before. So I said, I got to get to know a producer. He's like, yeah. I said, okay, what if I just first become a producer? Okay. And I'm just going to, I'll just produce my own show. How hard is it to produce my own show? So I immediately, right out of the gate, decided that I was going to control the 
uh, my own opportunities. Okay. And then I wasn't going to sign up for how the establishment wanted me to pursue a career in stand-up comedy. Mm. I was like, I'm not, that, none of that works for me. I don't like any of it. Mm. I'm just going to do it myself. So I produced a show um, that was called Captain Crunch Flashback, and it was literally me saying, this is my first time ever doing stand-up comedy. I made myself the headliner and did 45 minutes mm. the very first night. And uh, my good friend Steve Patterson, who hosts, uh, is the host of the CBC's The Debaters, um, uh, was a, a fairly new friend back then. It was over 20 years ago. And um, he hosted it for me. He was kind enough to host it for mm-hmm. me. And my friends from Urban Myth and some other folks, Aurora Brown, participated. And we, it was a great night. We sold out the, the house. Um, I invited friends and family got 120 people. We donated the money to charity and I did 45 minutes. And so I think that at the heart of, is at the heart of every entrepreneur, right? Mm. Like, why don't you, like, why are you creating something because the existing infrastructure doesn't support the thing that you want to do it or how you want to do it? And so the only way to do that is not to get angry is but to get creative. Mm. And so I was like, no, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own stand-up comedy career by making myself the headliner. Mm. And how long did you have that run as a producer and one-person show? Uh, I did stand-up for 20 years. Oh, just creating your own shows? Oh, no, I mean, once you, well, I did it that once? first time. Okay. And then you go, and then other people were like, hey... Oh, you should okay. come on my show. Oh, okay. So you basically disrupted the entry level stage of saying, "Hey, knock on the door. You guys let me in. You chose yourself, created your own opportunity, and then you were not seen as a peer. That people yeah. just laterally transitioned you into the industry. I said, "Hey, why don't you headline a couple more shows?" Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then I just and then I just built a career over time. And yeah. then I always I always controlled my own destiny. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to do things the way I wanted to do them. And I still produce a lot of shows, but it was really about me. Um, just doing things the way I wanted to do them. Okay. I think there's no, there's nothing wrong with Well Simple selling a stake of their company to investors group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's nothing, there's no nothing wrong with partnering with an established organization. Uh, it's to me, it's always been about destiny mm. and how can I control my own destiny. And so, you know, when I was at, uh, I was executive creative director at SVP at Euro RICG, which is now called Havas. It was an international network agency. And I, you know, I, I just saw the way the industry was going and I wanted to control the decisions of what type of work I would do, what mm-hmm. type of clients I would have, what type of... And I can't do that when I'm reporting into New York who's reporting into Paris. Mm-hmm. And so I resigned because I just wanted greater control over my personal mm-hmm. life and, um, and I wanted greater control of the problems that I solved and the team I built and, and, and everything. So that's that's what motivated me to leave the comfort and security of a full-time job and to start something mm. um, on my own. Mm. Now, usually when people are starting up entrepreneurially, there's that fear of leaving the corporate job because it's security. Every two weeks you get the paycheck. You know, you're, you're relatively safe. But yeah. starting up and then creating something that's not only... And no, okay, I don't want to say anti-establishment, but it's basically taking your life and your own destiny into your own hands. It's, it's, it's a little bit scary. So talk a little bit more about the mindset someone needs to have when you're going into that type of situation. Because I don't know if by the time you were transitioning, whether you had a family and you had, that you had to support and, you know, what was the buy-in there and what was the philosophy and ethos that you had to sell your family that, hey, 
you want to go and, um, you know, keep carving your own destiny yeah. and charting your own way? I had not met my wife yet. Okay. Um, I don't know if my wife... <laughs> hey, I'm going to quit my job, my very well-paying senior job. With, I mean, I didn't have... I mean, I guess we all have... The problem with when you get really senior is because you're an easy salary to cut, right? Mm-hmm. But um, So, no, so I was single at the time. This is eight years ago. I didn't meet my wife until I was uh, 42. Mm. Um, so I met her just just after I quit, okay. actually. Um, and um, But I the timing, I was very conscious of the timing of okay. it. Um, I knew that I, I had to pay my mortgage. I, you know, I, I wasn't married, but I certainly had financial commitments had that I needed to meet. Yeah. yeah, I had obligations. And so I, you know, was starting to speak and, you know, and speak on a fairly regular basis. Okay. And I always had that like, oh, could this ever grow to the point that um, it could be its own thing or that it could support me mm. to pursue my own agency. Mm. And then once I hit, I want to say like 20 speeches a year, I think. Okay. Um, I thought, okay, I could do this. Okay. And I like I can make it work. I can and and it was getting a little really tricky to balance a department of people and an agency and clients that I'm with the bosses that I reported to mm. with this you know speaking, th- speaking side. So I I waited for the speaking to get to a point where I thought it could it could support me, and that's exactly what it did. I used the speaking to fund the development of the okay. agency. Okay, and I know you've done a lot of interviews on speaking, and you've written about speaking and all that. Were you very intentional in building a speaker's career? Because a lot of people go into speaking and say, hey, I'm going to speak with the goal of being brought in as a consultant so that I can do other work or sell books, courses, workshops, and all right. that stuff. So was it just only speaking for you and say, hey, I just want to speak and share my ideas and my wisdom? Or you were also pulling other products that you had through with the speaker? Yeah, I don't care about the products okay. so much. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I you know, I don't... I don't fault anybody that does, mm-hmm. um, but you can imagine that my career as a stand-up makes the stage an interesting and comfortable place yeah. for me, yeah. uh, in, in which to to um, experiment and and get great satisfaction from mm-hmm. the performance side of it. So no, I I never planned on I never planned on being a speaker. Okay, um, I was doing the transition was I went from doing a lot of club comedy, comedy and clubs with the general population mm-hmm. and where I could swear if I wanted to. I mean, I didn't really. I was a fairly clean comedian. But because I worked in advertising, I could take that skill set and apply it to corporations. Mm-hmm. And so I got then hired to go in and like, can you come in and do a show for IBM? Mm-hmm. You know, And I'd listen in all day on what the speakers would say. And then I would write stuff and, and then I'd deliver it at nighttime. Mm-hmm. And then I started to uh, I started to include and integrate strategic messaging okay. within my comedy. And so that it became comedy with a message, okay. it was like a business message, mm-hmm. because I knew most categories superficially, at least mm-hmm. from my time in advertising. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would comment on what the strategic direction of the organization was. And I, and I got way more satisfaction out of that. Okay. That the silence that followed a laugh 
was way more satisfying than the laugh mm. itself. But I knew that it was really powerful to use the laugh to get to the silence. Yeah. And, um, and so the silence signified what? Where people, after laughing and getting the punchline of the joke, they are reflecting and they're getting the actual message. That they're, yeah, the silence is them going, oh, wow, he's right. Mm. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Mm. And it, which is humor, right? I hadn't thought of it that way before. Mm-hmm. So if I can get you to see it from this angle, chances are I can get to, you to see it from the other angle, which is a serious angle, mm. which is this is what you and your business need to do. But the interesting part with that was this is like the pivot, you know, that all entrepreneurs talk about the pivot. Mm-hmm. So I went and going, I'm going to be a comedian who knows about business. There is no market for a comedian who knows about business. Mm. That unicorn doesn't exist because because business people are like, you're a comedian. What the hell do you know about business? Mm -hmm. So there's no market for a comedian who knows about business. But my friend, there's a massive market for a funny business guy. Mm. And so I went from doing 80% comedy and 20% messaging to 80% messaging and 20% comedy. Mm. And and, And it was just a very simple pivot. And to the point that I said, never call, refer to me as a comedian again. Mm. Because they, if you say he's a comedian, they're going to like, what does he know about? He makes $12 an hour. Yeah, he waits on tables down. at nighttime. Yeah. You know? And so it was a very conscious pivot to like, no, I'm a speaker. And we don't even say that I'm funny. Mm. Let that be a surprise mm-hmm. when, I, when I show up. That is an added value to, to the speech. But I, I'm 100% a business guy, and I'm an entrepreneur. Mm. And I, my, I had more credibility as a business guy than I did as a comedian. Mm. Um, it, it was also the benefit of that is that it pays way more. Yeah. Way more to be a speaker <laughs> than to be a comedian. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm making Jerry Seinfeld money, obviously. But to, but to do well financially as a comedian in the corporate space... They need to be able to go, oh, you're that guy from that movie or that TV show or that thing, yeah. right? And, and I wasn't that guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever was going to be that guy. So uh, I, I thought, no, I can be an amazing, you know, I can be a great speaker yeah. and, um, and carve out an interesting niche for myself. Mm. Now, was that where the kernel for Think to Say, your new book, was born? Because... From what you, the story you just told me, I can kind of piece it towards one chapter in your book where you say, hey, you have to telegraph the messaging first and then you have to do it. Yeah. And then you now have to tell everybody about it. Yeah. A little bit. Um, the book came out of um, how I used to build a speech from my time in stand-up mm-hmm. comedy was that I would track bits. You know, every stand-up comedian has a bit, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's my airplane bit or whatever. Um, so I would have bits, and not funny bits, but buckets of things that I thought were important for business. Okay. Corporate purpose, authenticity, uh, um, you know, strategic insight. There's a million of them. And I would share those out through social posts or whatever, and I would track them, and then every speech would just be a collection of bits, of the mm-hmm. things that I thought were important for that company. I went to my good friends, Michael Port and Amy Port, uh, at Heroic Public Speaking in New Jersey. And I said, come see a speech. They came, and they're not all 10 out of 10s, but the one they came to was a 10 out of 10. Mm. It was in New York. It was standing ovation. It was incredible, right? Mm. This amazing crowd. It went really well. And I went to them, and I went, huh? Pretty good speech, huh? And they said, yeah, that was fabulous. We have some notes. <laughs> and their main note was, we don't know what this speech is about. Okay. Like, yeah, it's a bunch of random stuff, but what's the thread? 
And I had done an appearance on a, on a Canadian show that you may have seen called C, uh, CBC's The Goods. It was a, it was a daytime talk show. Mm. And they asked me to summarize what personal branding and what marketing was about. And I just like, oh, it's about what you think, what you do, and what you say, almost off the cuff. And I said to Michael and Amy, well, I did this show, and I said that it was based on what you think, what you do, and what you say. And then the three of us sat down, and we crafted that material. Well, what does the think really mean, and what does the do really mean, and mm. who are you doing it for, and what do they want you to do, and who do you do it with, and, and what do you say, and how do you say it, and when do you say it? And so that's where that thread came out. That I and, and then out of that, it was really satisfying to me, because while I was developing that, I was getting equally frustrated by the level of, um, can I swear on your podcast? Oh, yeah. The level of bullshit mm. business communications going mm. around of people just throwing around buzzwords and people weren't actually having real conversations. Mm -hmm. And they were chasing tactics or they were chasing these ideals or in the entrepreneur space, it was all about the hustle and the grind mm -hmm. and stuff. And I thought, that's, it's just bullshit. All of it. Those are empty words that don't mean anything to anybody. And can we not just have a real conversation? Mm -hmm. So I just thought that we needed to get at a more simplified structure mm. that can be applied to any business and any brand. It's like, look, what do you think? What is your purpose? What do you do to reinforce that purpose through the products you develop or the service you provide or the customer service actions your people take? Um, um, what do those, uh, uh, you know, who do you do it for? Like what specific individual, how can you customize? Mm. And if you're within an organization, even internally, who do you do it for? Mm. S uh, secondly, what do they want you to do? Which is really the heart of this podcast we've come out, like around disruption. How can you solve the problem, mm. the real problems yeah. that your customers have? And then who do you do it with? What's the network of people who help you deliver the thing you do? Mm. And then the say side, you know, that... Um, when do you say it and who do you say it to and, and how granular can you make it? So it's really, really flexible. It can be applied to people. It can be applied to organizations. It can be applied to brands. Uh, and it can be applied to movements. Yeah. Now, you treaded that into what you call the brand belief, which is a statement that embodies what a company should be and then how they should now implement and act out on this thing to say. And I think you use, you use Transocean with the... With the spill, BP oil spill. yeah, big oil spill, and then you also use Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad also. So now looking at those two different scenarios, plus all the other ones that had failed to actually put it in this way, what do you think is the what I say the underlying process of a particular brand person in an organization trying to get their message out, but not following this template of think do say. Well, I, you know, you're you're you're. The part about the brand belief, I think, is really critical and, and speaks to what I just mentioned about the bullshit of business communications, mm. right? Because when you say to somebody in an organization or even entrepreneurs, when they start their company, they think they have to do this thing called mm. a mission and a vision, yeah. right? Our mission is to become, is to disrupt retail. Our vision is... And the reality is those are just empty words. And I'm not saying you don't need to do those things, but you look at most organizations' mission and vision statement, they've been group written by a group of people in a boardroom with empty promises. They don't mean anything to anybody. And maybe the frontline team can recite them because it's been beat into their head through mm. their onboarding, right? But but they don't mean anything to anybody. Yeah, bumper sticker values. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? And so I like, well, so... We start with, what do you believe? And people are like, 
We believe that we... I'm like, no, screw it. Don't tell me what you sell. Mm. What do you fundamentally believe? And so if you're Nike and you think that everybody is an athlete and that, and that you support athletes and that everybody with a body is an athlete, if you're going to stand up and say that you're for athletes or you believe in the power of athletes and in supporting athletes, mm-hmm. you're morally obligated to run that Colin Kaepernick ad. Mm. You really are. And, and the people who I think... They try and uh, many people and organizations try and game the system, and they go, "Oh, what are people talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're talking about Me Too movement. Okay, let's just say we 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 believe in that. That's bullshit too. You know, it makes sense for Nike to run that ad. Mm-hmm. It does not make sense for Oldsmobile to run that ad. Does, mm-hmm. Old, uh, does, does Oldsmobile still exist? Not, I don't think so not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense for Toyota to run yeah. that ad, right? It doesn't yeah. make I don't have no idea why I just thought of Oldsmobile. <laughs> I'm 90, literally. <laughs> um, you know, so it made sense for them. And I think that's where people get, they get caught up is they think that corporate purpose has to be around some social issue. Mm-hmm. This is not, that's not it at all, right? So, where the, the Transocean BP oil spill, this was around the power of words. Hmm. And that it's, you can say we firmly believe in this. You can say that we behave in a way that reinforces that belief. But you still need a way of articulating those two things in a way that is memorable for people. Mm-hmm. And so it's either, you know, there's a, I don't, yeah, I think I did, yeah, I did talk about it in the book, but... Um, you know, there's a reason why people think Jake Burton invented snowboarding. Yes, is because snuffer, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it took off once the the word snowboarding yeah. was attached to it. But it actually, as a sport, existed long before that. But it was called snurfing. Mm-hmm. Nobody picked up on that. Mm-hmm. So you know, wording is really, really is really critical to mm-hmm. how you talk about something. And so what what BP did, um, or what Transocean did, Transocean was the one who actually owned the rig that 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 blew, blew up and and spilled all the oil in 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 the gulf but uh and i'm not pointing blame i'm just saying that it's funny that it became known as the bp oil spill because of a very conscious and uh and uh a very conscious effort to control the communication around that mm-hmm. by transocean but also uh, massive mistakes made by BP side yeah. where people just labeled them as being responsible mm-hmm. for the oil spill. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called the BP oil spill and not the Transocean oil spill. Mm. Oh, interesting, interesting. So um, the sub-statement in your book is how to sell, uh, sorry, how to seize attention and build trust in a busy, busy world. How to sell attention. <laughs> is, that's my next book. <laughs> you stumbled on something great. That's right. For only $19.99, you can buy my attention. <laughs> How to seize attention. And you wrote a little bit about, you know, getting an ad in the Times, Times Square. Square and, you know, people are pitch slapped all day long. I don't know what the statistics are, but we have 5,000 or how many. Well, yeah, it's, it grows every day. Yeah. So um, for an entrepreneur listening to this, and let's say the person is working in, you know, a small company in Mississauga somewhere and they're trying to start start their startup and get attention and they have incumbents they're going after their business or they're trying to even beat other startups in the same space how can they use the principles of things to say to seize attention in the marketplace especially in a competitive environment yeah it's it's the great part is that it is they use the and i'm not trying to get them to read the whole book Mm -hmm. but it's really those three things Mm -hmm. right that that it is by what you think what you do what you say and that um 
when people try and gain attention or seize attention, especially from the establishment, if you're trying to steal eyeballs from the establishment, they think they have to go head to head. That if they're running an ad, that we need to run an ad. Mm-hmm. That if they're doing social content, that we need to do social mm-hmm. content. If you're going up against IBM, you can't out IBM IBM. Mm-hmm. You just can't. And so what you should be doing is you should be form formulating your own approach mm. that is organic, that is unique to your organization, that allows you to compete and win on your own terms, mm. right? Um, that, you know, to my stand-up comedy example, uh, nobody was going to allow me to do 45 minutes. Um, and so I created my own ecosystem to mm. do it myself. Um, and so, and what that really is, that... Uh, you know, entrepreneurs think they have to jump to the say that they just got to start marketing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I, this is a great example. When I started this agency, it wasn't called Church and State. Yeah. It was called the Tight Group. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because I saw so many other um, businesses and agencies starting where the founders spent months on what the name was going to be. Mm-hmm. Months. Even small startups till today spend the same amount of time. They sound money yeah. and time, and they and they go. We need to build a website. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. You need to build a business. Mm-hmm. You need to build a business. Build the business. So start by building the business. Mm-hmm. Don't start by by creating the website. Mm-hmm. And and people say like, but we're never gonna get it. But yes, you will. I'm telling you, if you're good enough at what you do and what you're building, you can do that. And I'm not saying, of course, the power of the web is very very powerful. Mm-hmm. But they they jump right to the say because when you're starting it, when you're starting something, you don't know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the type of group was going to be. Mm. I knew that it was going to be involved in the content space and advertising space in somewhat, in somewhat way, but I, and I didn't exactly know what the approach was going to be, what the strategy was going to be. So I spent two seconds on the name. Mm. I did not have a website. And instead, I started having conversations with people so that I could build the better product. Okay. And that's where it started. Once the product got to a point where we said we know exactly what the product is. I looked at the name on the door and said the name no longer matches the product. Mm-hmm. What's the best name for this product? And that was three years into it. Mm. And finally it was like, uh, well, the product is the unification of content and advertising. Mm. We're calling this place church and state. Mm. And so, so you know, I, I think that's the, the approach that you need to take. There's a reason why say is the third step. Because too many people try and make the first step. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about things they don't even have. Mm-hmm. So what is your purpose? What were you meant to do? What do you firmly believe in? Mm-hmm. Um, what do the, your audience want you to do that reinforces that belief? And then once you've done it, now how can you talk about it in a really, really compelling way? Mm-hmm. When you combine all those three things, that's how you seize attention. And, uh, you know... Um, in the startup land, I've heard people say this horrible phrase, well, hey, they're talking about us, though. Mm. It's like, really? Is that all you that's the only, That's your only metric for success is that people are talking about you? Because I think I see a way around this. Mm. Go out, take a puppy, kill a puppy on a sidewalk, and people will talk about you. <laughs> oh, you don't want people talking about you killing a puppy. Okay, so that's not strategic for you. Okay, so so we know that we're somewhere between nothing and killing a puppy. Oh, yeah. So let's step it back. Is it maiming a puppy? No, it's not maiming a puppy. Okay, is it is it scolding a puppy? No, it's not nothing to do with puppies. Okay, so what does it have to do with right? 
So clearly that people do have some sort of sense of strategic decency to mm. them. So I would say do, go all the way. It's not about getting talked about. Mm. You know, the old, any PR is good PR. Yeah, yeah. That's bullshit. It's not. Ask a murderer. Is any PR good PR? Mm. No, it's not. It's wasted PR if it's not talking about the things that you want people to talk about. Now, there, uh, sometimes you get PR and you get unintended PR, right? Mm -hmm. Where people look at a feature. If you're, if you're coding, if you've got a software product and you have one feature that you think is a minor feature and people are talking about that feature mm -hmm. and that's all they talk about, then that's where you go, huh, this part is really is really getting a lot of buzz. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to dial up our that feature because mm -hmm. that seems to be the thing that people are talking about. Mm. That's a, there's a very big difference. I think, I think that's the case of, I don't know if it's Twitter or Instagram, where the I think it was Twitter, actually. The messaging feature and the sending of... Uh, well, one of the things was, that when Biz Stone and, and, um, and um, uh, the other dude... Uh, uh, who started Twitter, who also started Square, and whose yeah, name is Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. Yeah. So when Bizstone and Jack Dorsey created Twitter, um, I've done a couple of gigs with Bizstone, and he talks about a story of somebody on their team um, creating a hashtag mm. and saying, I think we should just have people be able to follow a conversation whether or not they follow the person that's involved in the conversation. Mm. And I think if we just put this number sign in, that can create a mini community around that that conversation. Mm. And Biz Stone said, people aren't going to do that. <laughs> what are you, crazy? They're going to they're gonna end a tweet with a little Hashtag. pound sign, <laughs> a little hashtag with a, like BizCon2019. They're not going to do that. Of course people did that. Yeah. And that created you know, the, the hashtag movement. But both Jack and, B and Biz, neither one of them thought the hashtag mm. thing was going to take off at all. And so what's great for entrepreneurs now is that you can try those things. Mm -hmm. And it's never been cheaper to fail. And in the, in the promotional side of things, if you fail, it's because nobody saw it. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Right? It's yeah. so cheap to produce stuff, to try out new things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, entrepreneurs need to be a little bit more experimental before they land on the thing that's going to be the thing. thing. Cool. So now let's talk a little bit about your podcast as we start to wind on the show. You call the podcast Coup. The Coup. The Coup. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, how to go anti-establishment. So tell us a little bit more about that and what are the philosophies and what are the lessons you're planning to share in that podcast? Yeah, so this podcast launches uh, September 24th through Roger's Frequency. Um, every week there'll be a new episode. I think we've got about 10 episodes in the can for mm. season one. Mm. It's a really research-heavy uh, podcast. Um and um, I love it. It's so... Uh, Allie Graham is the producer on it. She's done an amazing job with Julia Laurentiis Johnson and Chris Conley. Um, so the insight there was that when you look at disruption, mm -hmm. what is happening in disruption? Everyone's talking about disruption. But I think what's really happening in disruption, pick a category, it's that the establishment is being taken out. Mm -hmm. That there are insurgent forces who don't do things the way the establishment does. The establishment in every category has got really comfortable. Mm -hmm. They've stopped listening to consumers. They have kept their head down, maximizing profit. They haven't looked at alternative forms of revenue. They haven't looked at alternative forms of delivery, mm -hmm. new technology, uh, you know, uh, integrations that made life easier for their customers. None of that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And so insurgent forces are coming from outside the establishment. And um, they're taking the establishment down. So what I wanted to look at was what categories, like what's happening within categories. So if we look at um, razor blades, how is it that Gillette and Schick didn't see Dollar Shave Club and, and, and Harry's coming? How did you not see that coming? Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, they're, writing, they're lighting torches. They're outside your castle. How do you not know they're there? Secondly... Why didn't you do anything about it mm-hmm. when they start, you know, you know, kind of, you know, banging on the door? Mm-hmm. Um, and and what are the, what are the ramifications to the people who are associated with the establishment? Mm-hmm. And what can we learn from that? How can the establishment in all categories and industries look inward so that they and, and who is doing a good job of looking inward so they can perform a coup on themselves mm-hmm. before other people do? And then I think the most important part about it is. I think the lingering question through every one of these is, are we better off? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I think we think when we, especially in the entrepreneurial startup space, we think that every startup is a white knight, right? We think that they're showing up and, and, and they're showing up to save the day. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be amazing. But it's not amazing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And who gets caught in the crossfire? Who are the innocent bystanders to this? And is it really better? Are we really better off? Mm. I don't know. I don't know that we are. And I don't know that, that we're not. But someone has to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, we, yeah, we look at a bunch of different industries um, from, from music to comedy uh, to direct-to-consumer advertising to ad agencies to uh, masculinity, the coup of masculinity, mm. when every single in, in food, the coup of food, how is the establishment in food mm. being taken out from the farmers to the groceries to, to you know every line of that mm. uh, of that industry, um, they're all being taken out, or at least you know not being not going bankrupt, but you know something doesn't have to be eliminated. That sometimes if you just steal ten percent market share from somebody, that's pretty good. Well, not only is it pretty good, but that can be the difference with them between profitable and being bankrupt, or not yeah. bankrupt, but, but losing money. Losing money yeah. And over time, yeah. enough losing money and you go uh-huh. bankrupt. So, uh, and we've seen, we've seen companies that were supposedly too big to, to, to fail, big, yeah. fail. And I wanted to know what's going into that. Mm. And so I start, the pilot episode is, the first episode is ad agencies. And I want, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking around here going, who's the one to take me out? <laughs> So basically, there's a statement we have in my country, which is called shaking tables. So okay. basically, that's kind of like what you're trying to do. You're trying to disrupt the establishment by, by shaking the table on which everybody's standing on. So now you're shaking the table of the advertising industry by going after the I love that expression. I love that expression. We're going to shake some tables. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, so, it, so it's, so yeah, we've got like, you know, we interview a bunch of people per episode. And then we, and then, so it's kind of like a revisionist history type podcast mm. um, and the fine folks at Rogers have been really great to give us a home there and we um, we can't wait for it mm. I think I, I hope everybody likes it I hope they like the book I hope they like the podcast uh, I hope they like this podcast I hope they like you oh, I, you know that's right. <laughs> about peace and love everywhere now so one of the things we talked about was you were talking about was basically um, are all startups good and basically what what I thought about was basically someone like an Uber, for example. Mm-hmm. I know you had an example in the book where they were trying to fight the municipalities. I don't I don't particularly remember which state, but basically 
the way they describe themselves being a technology company versus yeah. a transportation company is what helped them now gain market share. They disrupted the the taxi cab industry all, all around the world. And mm-hmm. then now municipalities and laws are catching on and they now want to say, hey, because in your IPO you said, you know what, drivers are not necessarily employees, so that way the day they become employees, there's a material risk to our business. Right. Now that's happening. So how how does um a coup like that, it, it seems like almost a counter coup now that the established rest is now fighting back against the disruptor. Yes, I think you're right. The, the example I used there was, was the importance of, of language mm-hmm. um, and that if you, if you call yourself, and I think this is how people grow and companies grow. If, if you call yourself, um, you're a lettuce company, mm-hmm. the only thing you can sell is lettuce. Mm. And if somebody says, do you sell carrots? You're like, no, look on the door. We're, we're a lettuce company. Mm. Or you, can't, you can't grow. So it's really about expanding the definition for what you do so mm. that you can be flexible and grow in, in places and still be strategically relevant. And they were very specific that they were not a transportation company. They were a technology company. And that language said, because you have public policy, which states that transportation companies have to exist in this way. Mm. And, and we're saying we're not that. They we're not bound by the same rules as your quote-unquote transportation mm-hmm. companies or tech company. So I think that is important. Now, what is happening, of course, as happens in political coup d'etats, is people come in and they go, um, and we're seeing this south of the border, where it, the coup was, we're going to make this country great again. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of people who, who myself included, said, I, I don't know that you need to go back. You know, I think it was, I think any step forward is, mm-hmm. is going to be better, but Okay. But there were a lot of people who did want to reclaim some of that. And they thought this was the thing we want. And then it happens. And they're like, oh, this is what you meant? Mm. Oh, wait, that's not the definition that we had on those words. Mm. And so now it's like, mm, maybe the establishment wasn't so bad after all. Maybe the establishment wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. It never is. But maybe the chaos that always follows a coup, mm. we can't live through the chaos. Okay. And and I because there is always chaos, yeah. right? There's always chaos. There's always a power vacuum because the first thing that comes in is we're gonna we're gonna ignore all the rules that the establishment put in place just because we're gonna ignore the rules. That's mm-hmm. what we do. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, here's a, a better example for you. In music, we the establishment were the labels, mm-hmm. the labels, the record stores. Uh, uh, the radio stations and the artists, right? They controlled everything. Mm-hmm. The label said, we're going to tell you, radio stations, what to play. Mm-hmm. Record stores, we're going to tell you what to sell. And listeners, right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna listen to the stuff that we let you listen to because mm-hmm. anything else is out there. It's not good enough for the establishment. Mm-hmm. So we all listen to the establishment because they told us to. Then what power of the people comes in? We get the internet and somebody tells us, you don't have to listen to what the man mm-hmm. tells you what to listen to. And we all erupted in, in joyful glee mm-hmm. saying, we can comb the earth for whatever bands we want and we can watch them on YouTube and mm-hmm. we can download stuff. But there was anarchy because we said, screw pirating and copyright laws. The man has held us down for too long. Screw them. We're going to take whatever music we want mm-hmm. through Napster and everything else, right? We start ripping off music with, mm-hmm. without any, with a complete disregard for or with complete disregard for the artists and the legality that surrounded mm-hmm. all of that. But it's a coup. It's yeah. a power vacuum. Then what happens in that is the power vacuum, which which follows. And we went from, you don't have to have the man tell you what to listen to, mm. to consumers saying, 
can someone just tell me what to listen to? Mm. Because it's too much anarchy. Mm. I need rules, actually. I need rules. I need someone to listen to all the music for me and to mm. tell me what to listen to. I need someone to point out what's good because I don't have time to comb the earth for the best music. Mm. And so what occurs is that people fill the power vacuum. And so what, what is the end result? This is why I say, are we any better off? The end result, it's just a new establishment. Mm. And so it's not the radio stations and the record stores, but it's Spotify mm-hmm. and it's Live Nation and it's Apple Music. And to, there are some labels. This was from a conversation with uh, Jake Gold, who's a great music manager. Um, and, um, and Jake said that, look, there's some of the labels. Everyone says, oh, the labels are dead. No, the ones who are smart enough to innovate enough to live through the chaos mm-hmm. have emerged out the other side more profitable. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have warehouses anymore. They don't have to go to Germany to scout bands. They can just get Spotify or uh, Spotify links from uh, a a playlist from somebody, Mm -hmm. and they can listen in. They can see how many followers they Mm -hmm. have and decide whether they're going to sell them or not, or you know, rep them or not. Mm. So it's a way more efficient business. But let's not kid ourselves. Mm. What did we go from? We went from an establishment who told us what to listen to. To an establishment who tells us what to listen to, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, that, and that's not a moral judgment of any of those parties. Yeah. I'm just saying that that's that that is the natural rule for consumers. We say we don't want rules. Mm. We need rules. We need rules, we yeah. need rules. It's the reason why every startup out there has a goal of being a member of the establishment. Mm. They want to be the thing they're taking down. Mm. They want to get to the point where they have rules and process and dental plans and benefits and comfy corner offices. Mm. And then they too will be taken out by insurgent forces. Mm. And I guess we'll just have to leave it at that because (laughs) it's really been an interesting conversation. So Ron, before I let you go, tell us a little bit more about where people can get you when does the book come out and where, where can people get the book? So the book the is, is available in all forms uh, through audio, Kindle, and regular hard uh, copy and digital copy, everything. So wherever you get your books, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo in Canada, uh, type bookstores, all the independents, full distribution for the book everywhere and anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to thinktosay.com. Um, so yeah, book is available everywhere. The podcast is through uh, wherever you get your podcast okay, yeah. at Rogers Frequency. That launches September twenty fourth. And uh, one of the good parts of having a first and last name with only seven letters is Twitter at Ron Tide. It's Instagram at Ron Tide. It's LinkedIn. It's Ron Tide. It's wherever. Yeah, just you can just search me out. Cool, and I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. On this is edited and ready to go live. So my friend, awesome. Awesome conversation. Thank you, Jay. Thanks. This is my first in-person interview, by the way. I didn't mention it at the top of the show, but I'll probably do that in editing. But this is the first one, and I think we did a pretty good job today. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you for coming here to our beautiful Church and State headquarters. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. Or you can find the podcast on Google, iTunes, or whatever podcast player you listen to by simply searching the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.